0: Tanasi is my go-to when I can't sleep or I have way too much anxiety. I'm so glad that I discovered them. So go to tanasi.com and use the code POWER to get 25% off your order. That's tanasi.com, T-A-N-A-S-I, to get 25% off your first order with the promo code POWER. Welcome back to the Sober Powered Podcast. I'm Jill, and this is episode One. 100. I cannot believe that we're at episode 100 of this podcast. When I started this show, I just woke up one day and decided I wanted to share what I was learning with the world. I had no strategy, I had no Instagram followers, no one knew who I was, but I felt that this message was so important that I just needed to put it out there. And honestly, I really didn't think anyone would listen to it. And in the past 100 weeks, the show has grown considerably to become one of the top sobriety podcasts. So, of course, I had to do something really special for episode 100, and I decided to ask Dr. Anna Lemke to come back on the show. If you've been listening to the show for a bit, you probably listened to episode 76 with Dr. Lemke, which is one of the most popular episodes of the podcast of all time. So in this episode, Dr. Lemke and I chat about radical honesty and awareness, and not just being honest with other people, but being honest with yourself. And we talk about why it's so hard for us to be honest with ourselves about our drinking how to get to acceptance and how to have self-compassion, why it's so important for our mental health to accept responsibility and take ownership for our role in the things that happen to us, how you can start practicing radical honesty, how to recognize destructive patterns in your life, and what to do if you don't like being sober, and a ton more than that. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and I really appreciate you being here with me, whether you've been here for the past hundred weeks, or this is the first time you've ever listened to the show. So let's get to the conversation. (laughs) Dr. Lemke, thank you so much for coming back on episode 100 of the podcast.
1: I'm so excited and honored to be here for your 100th episode. What a milestone.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, So today we're talking radical honesty. So I think the obvious question to start with is why is lying and dishonesty so common for people who struggle with addiction?
1: Well, first of all, I would say I think it's pretty common for everybody i mean like just people are natural liars and and believe it or not there are studies showing that the average adult tells one to two lies per day i mean these aren't you know whoppers but they're little lies you know like you know why am i late for work oh the traffic was bad just little things that we sort of fudge here and there we think no harm done but of course, you know, in the throes of addiction, there are a lot of, th- you know, things related to addictive use that, that people lie about. A lot of energy and creativity goes into, uh, you know, creating that second life and then hiding, hiding the addiction. In some instances, it's even part of the appeal, right? It's the secret life and the secret nature of it that adds a little bit to other uh, rewarding aspects or can do. Um, until it just gets to be exhausting and overwhelming and people can't can't do it anymore. Um, but but that's you know, that's why, uh, you know, addiction is is so intimately connected to lying. Some people even say that you can define addiction as the things that we do that we lie about.
0: Yeah, I like that. And I've thought a lot about how the mental obsession takes up so much time, like all the time you have to think about it, about doing it or not doing it or how to control it or how much you suck for doing it. Mm. But it wasn't until I read this chapter of your book that I was like wow and all of that um, the lying and the secrecy that takes up a lot of mental energy too so we just have all this stuff going on in our minds at all times to just maintain this miserable situation oh
1: yeah no it's like a whole like a whole lattice work right that gets evolved all the lies upon lies you have to remember who who you told what when how (laughs) um and then as one of my you know patients he described so well he said and then you just get in the lying habit then you're lying about stuff that doesn't even matter. And the the example that he gave that I love so much that I often quote is he said, you know, I'd be getting lunch at Burger King and my friend would call me and he'd say, hey, where are you? And I'd say, oh, I'm at McDonald's. And then I'd be at McDonald's and he'd call and I'd say, hey, where are you? Oh, I'm at Burger King. It was like, it didn't even make sense anymore. It was just... What he called the lying habit.
0: I think those lies are the ones that interest me the most. People that lie, and there's really no reason to lie, but they find themselves doing it anyways, and that must be really hard to stop doing.
1: Well, you're right. It's it's fascinating, and it's like, well, what what is that actually about? And I think what it's about is trying to control reality. And of course, that illusion of control is at the heart of so much about addiction. I mean, we don't, we're not really in control, but we can for a while maintain the illusion of control because we can use this drug to change the way we feel in the moment, as long as it's still kind of working for us. Yeah. And control is
0: something that I was always seeking to get. Like maybe I have this out of control situation that I don't know how to deal with, but I can control you know, imploding
1: with right, alcohol. Right. And it's
0: interesting because once you get drunk,
1: you're completely out of control right. again. Yeah, such a paradox, right? Like this idea that that we try to use our drug to exert some sense of control, but all we're really doing is having the walls collapse in on us.
0: It's very fascinating the way that our
1: minds work. Um, So self-awareness
0: is another big struggle that we all have. And I know I'm not alone in this, but when I got some sober time, I was just in shock with how long I convinced myself that I didn't actually have a problem and there was nothing wrong. And I was going to figure out this moderation thing. And I kept that lie going to myself for so many years, even though I had 100% of the evidence showing me like, no, this is actually not true. Why do you think it's so hard for us to be honest with ourselves?
1: Gosh, that's a great question. Um, Especially when you describe it in the context of you're convincing yourself for so long that you could moderate until finally embracing the truth that you couldn't. I mean, I think, you know, there's just a lot of wishful thinking there, you know, of wanting reality to be one way and not wanting to kind of accept, accept it for what it really is and then allow ourselves to grieve, you know, and mourn that thing, which is what it requires when we finally, you know, let it go. It's a real shift in identity, right? It's, it's kind of the the ground of your being has to sort of give way there and you have to embrace a whole other identity and way of being in the world. And, you know, that's, that's not easy because we spend so much of our mental energy kind of shoring up our identity. I'm this person, I do this type of thing, you know, I, I react in this situation. Um, so, you know, it's hard, hard to let that go.
0: Do you think acceptance is important for like awareness and, and honesty with ourselves and others?
1: For me, it really starts with acceptance of our how flawed we all are, you know, of our kind of a brokenness, our frailty. And once we accept that, I feel like everything else flows. It's while we're still thinking or trying to convince ourselves and other people that we have it under control or that we can control it or, you know, that we're this type of person or that type of person. Um, you know, then a lot of our energy gets sucked up by trying to like, you know, put, you know, put our finger in the dam. Right. Whereas like, you know, just across the river, the dam is breaking. I mean, it's obviously breaking, but we're like, no, no, I can, I can, you know, it's, it's not too late. Um, I got it this time, yeah, right. I promise. Yeah, right. right, exactly. So, so yeah, I think it starts with acceptance. And then, of course, with that must come compassion, right? Self-compassion and, and uh, you know. And the amazing thing is I find fascinating that when we can accept our own flawed natures and have compassion for ourselves, all of a sudden we have much more compassion for other people as well, which is interesting, Right. Like when we're very hard on ourselves in this way, we're we're quite intolerant of others. But when we're willing to sort of say, okay, this is how it is and, you know, I got to move on from here, then we're not so condemning of, of other people's frailties either.
0: Yeah, self-compassion was really, really challenging for me. And while I was drinking, um, I used to find myself tearing other people down, just like my automatic thoughts. And I wouldn't share them with other people. They were just things that I thought. And I would instantly just tear other people apart based on their appearance or what they were doing. And it wasn't something that I really picked up on until yeah. I had some sober time. Mm-hmm. And then I forced myself, like every time I did it, no, give this person a compliment in your head. And now like I'm, I've trained myself to just give them compliments.
1: Wow. In my head. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, what I love is that, you know, you came to this place of awareness of your judginess, which is by the way, something that all of us struggle with, like that kind of reflexive judginess. Um, you know, that we all combat. I mean, unless you're a saint, but most of us aren't. Um, <clears throat> but the great thing is that you, you did something very interesting, which is a, a powerful thing. You basically now practice the opposite, right? W- which is, you know, very, very good because our brains are muscles. And what we what we practice is what gets strong. Um, So now you, you practice trying to find the good in people. And probably um, my guess is that reflexively, you now also see that um, sometimes, not always, you know, but sometimes it's the thing, same thing with, you know, with gratitude lists. Like why do gratitude lists? Well, I mean, gratitude is the ultimate antidote to self-pity, right? When we're, when we're in gratitude about the things that we have, then we can't, uh, we can't be spending a whole lot of time in that other place. Do you think we can do a similar kind of practice with honesty?
0: Like, say, the person you're describing who said he was a Burger King when he was at McDonald's. Is there like a practice you can apply where he then, you know, calls his friend and says, I'm actually a Burger King? I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Dude, I have no idea why I just said it was McDonald's. I'm at Burger King. That was weird. So, so absolutely we can. And, and I'm very interested in practices, right? So we spend a lot of time in mental health, including in addiction treatment, talking about the ways that we think and the ways that we feel and all of that's important. But at the end of the day, what do we do, right? What do we do? And that's why I love this idea of radical honesty, because it's something that we can actually Practice. We can wake up in the morning and say, today, I'm going to try to go through the whole day and not tell a single lie about anything. And if I do, I'm going to try to correct it as soon as I possibly can, even if it seems small and inconsequential. This is a very important practice for recovery. And as I talk about in my book, I think it really works on a physiologic level. So it probably strengthens the prefrontal cortex, for example. And the prefrontal cortex is that big gray matter area right behind our foreheads that's so important for future planning, delayed gratification, and also storytelling, so autobiographical narratives of our lives. And when we set up first thing in our day that we're not going to tell any lies, it's effortful because we're all natural liars. So by doing that, it's like we're our, our prefrontal cortex is lifting weights; it's getting stronger. And in getting stronger, we're much more likely to be able to manage our limbic brain, right? Our lizard brain, our, our brain of, of desire. Uh, because when those two things are talking to each other, you know, the odds are we're going to make much better decisions.
0: Yeah, and increasing your ability to delay gratification is important for recovery, too. And I loved, um, that's kind of where I was getting about the prefrontal cortex, because you were talking about, Um, the study, and then you reached out to the author about maybe how honesty could strengthen the prefrontal cortex. And I think it's fascinating because it also makes us pause a little bit more. Like if, if you're thinking I'm not lying today, you have to really think through what you're saying and pay more attention to things. And just creating that pause can help someone when they have a trigger and their first thought is like, time to ruin my life, let's go. Then they can think like, no, Mm -hmm. we're not, we're not doing that Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. And the pause could completely save
1: them. Yeah. Right. So just kind of slowing it down, right. Slowing it down as a way to put a barrier between desire or impulse and actually acting on that desire or impulse. I think you're absolutely right. How does blame
0: relate to this? Like something else I've done in my life is I can very easily find how other people are responsible for my situation. And maybe they played a role in it. But I can really just be like, it's this person's fault. Here's why, like, they should have done this better. I'm absolved. I did nothing wrong. I'm this perfect person, um, who's just a victim. How does blame relate to like, honesty and, and awareness?
1: Yeah. So this is really key. And one of the things after, you know, 25 years of listening to people's stories as a psychiatrist that I have really come to believe is that when people come into my office and they tell their autobiographical narratives in a way which always has them as the victim, those people are really ill. And I know they're not going to get better until they can start telling their story in a way that reflects what they've contributed to the problem. And I've seen that again and again and again. And of course, that's, you know, that's part of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous too, is, you know, acknowledging our own character defects and what we've contributed. But even more broadly, not just in addiction, but treating all different kinds of disorders. When I have a patient who comes in and can acknowledge what they have contributed realistically to the problem... That person is much more likely to get well and to do well uh, in their lives than somebody who comes in and says, it's this person's fault, it's that person's fault, it's your fault, you know. And I think that this is operating on several really important levels. Um, and, and I would say the most important levels level on which it operates is that the autobiographical narratives that we tell about our lives are not just a way to organize our past experience, they actually predict our future experience. So how we tell our stories really matters. And if we're telling stories that hue as closely as possible to what really is, that means we're telling a story that has as much objective factual truth in it as we humanly possibly can acquire which is a really powerful narrative because that means it's going to give us a really good roadmap going forward. It's not never going to be flawless because we're flawed, but we're going to have the information that we need to make the best decisions. I'll just give you one little example from from my own experience, because, of course, I think this applies not just to addiction, but to life more broadly. So, you know, as I talk about in the book, my mom and I have always had this very conflicted relationship um, and one of the things that actually drives me crazy about her is that she doesn't communicate on email the way that I think that she should. Yeah, right. And I, this is not in the book. So I, I didn't put this in the book. I probably should have. But anyway, like I like she'll email me, let's say, with a question. I will respond with an answer to that question and then maybe an added question and then I'll never hear back from her. And it just drives me nuts. It's like, that wasn't the natural ending point for that interaction. And so, and this has been sort of one of the many, you know, beefs that I have. So about, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, we had this kind of exchange and I ended up sending her an email with a lot of really important questions about something, I don't remember what, but it was something fundamental you know, and maybe even have had to do with our relationship. Um, and I, you know, the next day I'm like, oh, surely she's going to, you know, I'm going to, the next day I look, no response, the next day no response. And then we're like week two, week three, week four. I, by this time I want, I literally, I want to kill her. I'm like, I want to kill her. She has not responded. Anyway, I finally, you know, did my process, whatever, let it go. Okay, I just have to accept this. But... Anyway, about six months later, I kid you not, I found my email in the the unsent folder. So I had never actually sent the email that I became convinced she hadn't responded to. The point being that when we get into these narratives where we're always the victim, we will act in ways to perpetuate our victimhood. And I just found that, like, that was a, just a, my own personal example of how that played out. That is, that's hilarious. Did you ever send it, though? Oh, no. I mean, we're not, <laughs> you know, no. No, by then, you know, I had moved on. and <laughs> But, but you know, it's just, it was just so emblematic of, like, I mean, I couldn't really move. I really couldn't make progress in my relationship with my mom until I could acknowledge all of the ways in which I had contributed to our fraught relationship. And you know what? There were a lot of ways. There were a lot of ways. I mean, I was a bad actor on many, many occasions. But prior to acknowledging that and only seeing her as the cause of our difficult relationship, I could never move forward or make my peace. And it was just perpetuating, uh, you know, that cycle. It's hard to get there, too, to mm-hmm. where
0: you recognize your role in it. and. I've done that work with like a couple of different patterns that have played out in my yeah. life. And I've got to the place where it's like, whoa, I am a common denominator in all of these situations. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard to not be like, you're a loser. You suck. It's your fault. Like, right. that's where I want to go after. So I think that's hard, too. Um, and maybe that's a reason we don't want to go there is because we don't want, you know, to suck or be the worst.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, and all those kinds of reflexive patterns, they get exacerbated when we're in our addiction and we have no ability to get distance from them or observe them. And then, of course, the work of recovery is learning to sit with those emotions, to actually observe them, to see them for what they really are, to realize the instances in which we are the common denominator and then to, you know, have compassion for ourselves, compassion for the people that we've harmed and then say, okay, how can I, you know, change this going forward? Um, it's a really humbling, really humbling process. I think, you know, even it's a, you sort of describe it in terms of thought patterns, but I think it can even happen in terms of emotion patterns. Like, like my reflex emotion to almost everything is anger. Like even when I'm sad, first I'm angry, you know, which is weird. It's almost like there's like a, like the wires got crossed and I, I'm some, I have a lot of difficulty accessing my sadness. But when I learned to do that and like, let myself just be sad, it's much softer and it feels truer.
0: Yeah. I used to always tell myself angry is better than sad mm. when that would happen. Cause at least. You're not, I don't know, just lying there, like so depressed and everything's the worst. Like when you're angry, at least you, can, I don't know, you have energy and you can blame other people you're for right. it. Yeah, it's a
1: kind of an active thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And yet, interestingly, you know, some character temperaments have a lot of difficulty accessing or expressing anger, right? And then that's there. That becomes their job to to access that and and to express it in a productive way one pattern I've certainly seen a lot in people with severe addictions is a kind of avoidant coping style where the way that they take care of a problem is not really to address the problem, but to use. Right. Um, And so then in that instance, like learning to recognize anger, validate it, express it in a productive way, it becomes uh, that task. How can we start
0: recognizing these patterns in ourselves?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing to do is to get sober, right? Impossible, impossible to recognize these patterns when we're using, because, of course, at the heart of use is sort of escaping um, these observations. So, you know, uh, getting sober and then being curious, you know, being curious, um, finding ways to process it, either by talking to another person or writing it down or maybe through art or who knows what, you know, and then trying to change, change behaviors around it so that we don't continue to perpetuate those same problems.
0: Yeah, I think this is part of the work that we all have to do. And I see people um, either posting or sharing somewhere and saying that they don't enjoy being sober. And they're sober because they have to be but they hate it. And my first thought is like these patterns that are probably continuing on from when you were drinking or using and now you're not wanting to recognize them and you're living in kind of the, that same victim mindset. Um, so I think that's a really important part of the work that we have to do when we finally get sober.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A kind of a dry drunk mentality where, yeah, where people are not using, but they're not really moving forward psychologically. I also think, too, that there's a big process in recovery of kind of tempering expectations around what life holds, you know, and learning to be at peace with, uh, you know, life being maybe not always full of drama and um, making room for some boredom, for, you know, for the dissatisfaction that really pervades so much of life, so much of the time, And then sort of also coming to terms with that.
0: Yeah, we get used to the chaos that when the chaos disappears or starts to fade away, we think things are boring or uncomfortable or just not fun or good anymore. And it's it's just a lack of chaos that we're experiencing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So how to find sort of a shape to things, right? A shape, a shape of the day. Uh, without having it be, you know, shaped by the chaos of of our addiction. I like that.
0: Um, So you were mentioning narratives and the way that we tell our story. And I loved your description of Drunkologues in chapter eight. Um, And when you told the story of the person that was sharing his story at the conference, my first reaction was exactly then how you said you reacted, Mm. like cringe, like, ooh, I I don't like that you said that. Um, In saying, you know, be prepared to cry, or I forget exactly how he worded it, but um, how do we know if we are telling
1: drunkologues or if we're telling a true narrative? You know, my sense is that true stories along these lines should always be hard to tell and should always be accompanied by a little bit of shame, right? If it just kind of rolls off the tongue and it's never a little bit painful, then probably we're not accessing that space in ourselves that that we really need to access to make it a truthful and generous disclosure meant to meant to help others. And we're veering into a kind of disclosure porn, which is just, you know, uh, to sort of get a certain type of reaction or manipulate the situation.
0: I really like that criteria that true stories are hard to tell.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: I think that's really easy to ask yourself. Was this hard to tell or was it not?
1: Right, right. That's right. Yeah, and, and you know, really speaks to the ways in which the shame, that experience of shame is such a painful emotion, but but also ultimately a, a kind of a pro-social emotion, right? One that can be our guide if we're we're listening to it. Do you think social media
0: has a role with drunkologues? Because um, a lot of people get sober and then they... Are very quickly on social media sharing and trying to grow a following or grow a business or something. Do you think drunk logs have anything to do with that? You know, I think it can do.
1: I mean, I I think there's a general trend in the culture now toward more self-disclosure, which I think in general this kind of transparency can be a very good thing. Um, it's a way you know to feel our sort of. Common humanity. Um, You know, it's a way to keep ourselves accountable. So it can be part of also somebody's recovery and their radical honesty. But um, you're absolutely right that, you know, obviously social media is a way to drugify many human experiences that started out healthy and then become unhealthy. So for sure, when people are kind of exploiting, you know, their disclosures for some kind of secondary gain. I mean, you can feel that. I mean, they can feel it, too. If they're not letting themselves feel it, then they're in denial about, you know, that space in their lives. Um, But you can you can sort of feel it like, is this here? Are people here in an authentic way? Because they, you know, want to help and just and and make the situation better, or are they really here because they want to see like a flow of hearts on the right side of the screen, right? (laughs) Which is like, and unfortunately, like those those kinds of responses on social media they do trigger dopamine. I mean, they are potentially addictive. So we have to really. It's not like it's an easy line to walk, and I think probably most of us stray across it now and then. Uh, But again, this is all about paying attention, about being awake. You know, about no longer being in the waking dream of addiction, but really paying attention, making mistakes, because we always will, thinking about them, going back and apologizing or trying to do better next time.
0: And I think it's hard when you are newly sober. And then you get on social media and you get all of this gratification very quickly. And, you know, the algorithm, whatever. And then eventually like engagement goes down or your reach Mm. goes down and you get less. Mm -hmm. And then people are, are struggling with that and struggling with comparing themselves to other sober people that have these big pages or trying to share to get more shock value. And less um, like truth telling
1: so hard, right I mean it's just a vicious, vicious cycle, and of course, this whole idea of cross addiction you you know I can't help but think of it the, the way that when people get into recovery from their drug of choice, they're very vulnerable to getting addicted to something else and have to really be paying attention and of course the something else in this instance is the gratification of social media, right, and those kinds of um, all that sort of adoration that can be so uh, seductive um, and that social media can, can provide really, really hard and really important to look at that and then to take a step back and say, you know, what part of this is, is still part of my original mission and purpose and at the core of why I'm here in the first place and what part of this has become something else
0: yeah like what what's my point here like i've done it with my show too like Mm -hmm. i can see how many people listen to my show right and i can see how many people have listened you know to this episode compared to this one in the first week and and i have to remind myself all the time like It's not numbers like these are real people that that I talk to, too. So
1: that's helped me a lot, too. That's great. Yeah, no, it's and like we know that enumeration, giving something a number really triggers dopamine. Right. Which is why the likes and the rankings you know, we're all so potent. I mean, the same thing happened to me. You know, I'm not on social media, as you know. I wouldn't be able to handle it. My, my brain would just explode. <laughs> um, and, but when my book book first came out and then started to do well, you know, I found myself like tracking the rankings on on Amazon hourly, right? And I, that was, I mean, it was just crazy. I just got so, and then it was like, then no matter how well it did, it still wasn't good enough, right? Well, but how about the And so after two weeks, I just like, I can't do this anymore. You know, I can't look at this. And then I had to remember, you know, what, why did I write this book? And what, what do I really care about? You know, that this will help people and all of that. Uh, But it is really hard when people's like entire job is social media and to pump up the rankings. Is there, so then that, that's really tricky. I don't know what to say to that.
0: Yeah. Um, I appreciate you sharing that you did that with your book because i would totally do that too and there's always a new number to chase
1: right exactly (laughs) no it's really true it's like which is why this adage sort of take it one day at a time is so good because you can just you can just start every day new and you can just say you know what what is the what are the choices that i can make today that will at the very least not make the world a worse place when when I started out like you know let, let me let me try for that and so then you don't do the future tripping or the past regret and all of that so I think super super important.
0: If someone's listening to this and they're thinking like I might be doing these things I might be chasing numbers or I might be in a pattern either with my behavior or my emotions or I might be telling little lies that don't matter frequently like what can they do to kind of address that like what's the first step that someone should take there
1: you know i really believe in this dopamine fast that i write about i really do i've just seen it work in real time with hundreds thousands of patients come through my office i've tried it in my own life And I think in some ways, it's really the only way to get out of this vicious cycle of sort of compulsive overconsumption, whatever form that takes. And, you know, maybe it's just a day, maybe it's just 24 hours of not going online and just observing like what happens in our brains of FOMO, anxiety, restlessness. Oh my goodness, I'm missing that. I'm missing, you know, and then just being offline long enough to get to that place where like, you know what, it, it doesn't matter. You can get perspective again, say, well, what what was that? Like, I don't have to chase that. You know, that's not what it's really about for me. And then being able to go back to that activity really with a reset reward pathway, you know, and then putting real careful barriers in place. So personally for me, like I, I take a digital Sabbath whenever I can, I try to go one day a week for 24 hours and not look at a single screen. And you know, it's, It's hard every time, but it's also really worth it. And I find when I go back, I'm not engaged in that same kind of clawing way. I feel like I have more perspective and more distance. I'm not being sucked into the black hole.
0: Yeah, I think that's really healthy and something I've been telling myself for
1: a bit that I should probably do. Yeah, I was just going to say, what do you do?
0: Uh, <laughs> I, so what I do is I'll get burned out mm-hmm. and then I'll be like, I can't, this is ridiculous. I can't be in this loop anymore. And then I'll disappear from you know, all screens or I guess just my phone, I'll disappear from the phone and I'll, I don't know, play video games all day or like I'll go somewhere all day. Like I'll just spend a lot of time alone Mm -hmm. or maybe like I'll read an entire book in a day. Mm -hmm. And then the next day I wake up and I get a little more balanced that day and I do less of the alone and more like normal stuff. And then mm-hmm. then I come back normal. Mm-hmm. But I've done that a couple times. And and, you know, waiting till I get burned out isn't the best way to do it. But that disconnect and spending a lot of time by myself helps me.
1: Yeah. So that's good. So you're somebody who needs some alone time in order to restore and refresh And that's, that's really, that's really good to know about yourself, you know, and to kind of respect it. And I think you're right that the key for you is going to be to do more regular pulses of that, even maybe, you know, write it into your schedule. So one of the things that I've learned to do is I actually schedule downtime. I, I literally will block out a day or a half a day and not have anything scheduled on that day because when I have even one thing scheduled my mind can't drift and dream in quite the same way whereas if I don't have anything on my schedule for that day then it it opens up the time in in a kind of expansiveness which is very restorative for me but I think you're right it's like well finding what, what that thing is and then building it in yeah I get this like
0: overwhelming feeling like everybody wants something from me <laughs> and I have nothing for them right. and then that's when I'm just like pfft, disconnect
1: <laughs> right right Reset. <laughs> yeah yeah no I can really relate to that feeling yeah and and then you know and then if you don't if you don't take time for yourself, then you can lead to that can lead to resentment that other people haven't earned and don't deserve, right? And we're resenting other people, but really it's our fault because we weren't able to say no.
0: Yep. Yeah. So boundaries and understanding how to set those has been key too. But how long does a dopamine fast take to like be productive long term, like to reset our reward system?
1: I think it really depends on whether or not you are truly addicted to that substance or behavior. If you're really addicted, then in my experience, a month is kind of bare minimum. And you and I have talked about this and how in your experience you think it's even probably more than a month, right, to reset, really reset reward pathways. And I've certainly seen... Some patients who need even longer than that, you know. Um, But if it's not a full blown, not yet a full blown addiction and just kind of a bad habit or a kind of a compulsive overuse that hasn't yet strayed into a full blown addiction or a severe addiction, then I think it could be shorter than a month, you know. It could be. It could be a week. Again, I think this exercise of even 24 hours, there's something sort of uh, like physiologically miraculous about 24 hours. 24 hours, our body goes through a whole complex symphony of arousal, um, you know, a rest, kind of the whole adrenal cortex, um, everything kind of goes through there in a full cycle. Um, and then come and then starts again so there's something really interesting about a 24-hour period of basically abstinence or uh you know changing that behavior and then, of course, when we wake up, it's we do feel that we can sort of start anew. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking about
0: myself like with sugar or with the phone. And when you said a week and I I was thinking about like the phone, I was like,
1: Ugh, <laughs> yeah, right, a week? right. Right. Yeah. Hard, hard. But a week is easier if you um, plan something else. Right. If you plan a hike or you're, you're going on a trip and obviously doing it together with somebody else's is much easier so that you're not alone, right? You, you have some, some other human to be with and talk to. Yeah. And if you can't do it for a day
0: or it's like really a struggle, that's helpful information too.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right.
0: Thank you so much um, for coming back on the show and, and taking the time to talk to us today. Is there anything that you're up to or you're just enjoying, enjoying your book success?
1: Well, um, I mean, I'm very busy. You know, I I still run the clinic here and I teach and I'm involved in ongoing opioid litigation um, against Purdue Pharma and others. There are still some companies that haven't yet joined that settlement. And so I do have a lot, a lot going on. I am looking forward to a day soon when I will have less going on. But it's really good to talk to you. It's always a pleasure. And
0: everybody who hasn't checked out Dopamine Nation, uh, the link will be in the show notes. And again, just thank you for being here.
1: Oh gosh, my pleasure. It's a delight to talk with you.